Merry Christmas. Man, I am so happy to be with you guys tonight. We began our Advent journey with a story, and I think it's only fitting to end our Advent journey with that same story. Now, um, I have a video which is a, does a way better job at showing you what I'm talking about than me describing it to you like you did the first time, but I do have to set the video up slightly. So, for the last three years, my friend, um, an old friend, had been living across the world from her family as an opportunity provided her to play professional basketball in Australia. Now, due to the pandemic and travel restrictions and just the sheer demand of being a professional athlete, this dream of hers kept her across the world and away from her family. But this year, something unexpected would take place. You see, just a few days before Thanksgiving, her family was out eating at an Outback Steakhouse when they received a face call, FaceTime call from their daughter, who they presumed was across the world. And here's what happened next. It's a beautiful moment, and in the day and age that we live in, those stories are hard to find, but when you find a man, you hold on to him, and I held on to that one dear to me. You see, there in the middle of all places of an outback steakhouse, a family was overcome by the unexpected nearness of their daughter. In one moment, she's in a different time zone. She's across the world, thousands of miles away, and in the next, she is in their arms. And I think I could think of no better story to tell the story of Christmas than this, of unexpected nearness. Now, I realize this is a familiar story. Chances are you're not hearing the Christmas story for the first time. If you've been in the U.S. for any amount of time, you've seen the plastic baby Jesus and the outdoor nativity scene. You've sung the songs. You know the hymns. You see the decorations all over. Christmas is not new to you. And so it's become a familiar story. And it's a story that you find yourself immersed in year after year. Maybe you know the story so well, you could come up here and summarize the story and paint the picture of what the scene looked like. And maybe, if you were honest, this story has become so familiar, it's lost all its wonder. Maybe... You walked through these doors expecting Christmas as usual. You know the songs, you know the story, and frankly, you know it all. 
And there's been plenty of guys dressed up in nicer suits than this who have proclaimed this message to you before. So this is all Christmas as usual. But what if, what if tonight God was going to meet you, not in something new, but in something familiar? What if tonight you could be caught up again in the wonder of the story of God coming near? What if this Christmas, it would not just be a story that you tell, but something you live? What if from the soil of familiarity sprouted forth seedlings of wonder? And what if tonight you would be surprised by the unexpected nearness of God? Now, to tell this story, I have to tell it through a name. And that name is the name you all probably know, but that of Emmanuel. Name meaning God with us. It is this name that has anchored the people of God through the darkest of nights. It is a promise that when they felt alone or rejected, that a day was here and on the way that God would be in their midst. It is a name that captures the heart of God and found itself embodied in Jesus. It is the name that the entire biblical narrative can be summarized by, God with us. And it is on this idea that John is mapping onto, that the fulfillment of the ark of the scriptures is found in the person of Jesus, whom they would call Emmanuel. However, John doesn't say it like his counterparts, like Matthew. He says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Let's begin with the word. We find ourselves over the last several weeks building to this crescendo that is the introduction of John's gospel. And verse 14 is the hook. It is kind of the best part. It is the most memorable part of the whole thing he's been going on here. John Barclay, he's a commentator, he fell in love so much with this. Oh, sorry, William Barclay, that he said that this verse, this line, was the whole reason he wrote the book, was to say this one very thing. It is the hinge on which this book turns. You see, and John is one of my favorite writers because he's not just a theologian, he's also an artist. And he's writing beautiful poetry in these first few letters. And with just this phrase, the word, John is including all of his listening audience. You see, the word had, in the Jewish imaginations, this, would, this phrase would take their mind to their story, the creation narrative, the God's word and wisdom bringing all things into existence. And for the Greek imagination, this would be their story in their mind. The idea of the word, or in Greek, the logos, is what the Greek people held as the foundation for reality. It is the word, or the logos, that makes all things possible, and John is saying Jesus is the word, mapping all of his listeners into this man, Jesus. What John is doing with just one word is contextualizing Jesus in each of the dominant ways in which the world was viewed at that time. And he is saying that Jesus is what gives everybody meaning and purpose, and he is reality. John is saying simply this, that this story is our story, because all of our stories culminate 
in Jesus. And he's saying he is the foundation of all reality. And John has been building on this idea. And the idea is simply this. God longs to be known. God longs to be known. David Banner says this. God's very nature is revelation. He did not simply reveal himself at some point in the past. God has no more ceased being revelation than he has ceased being love. Revelation is his nature. And Christian spirituality grows out of the attunement of our souls to the revealing God who seeks us out and calls us to know him and his love. God longs to be known. You see, the same God who speaks universes into existence whispers in humanity's ear. The same God who architected reality as we know it wants to reveal his heart. The same God who transcends time and space invites you to call him Abba. The same God who holds all things together longs for you to lay hold of him. And the same God who knows all things himself wants to be known. Because God is at the same time infinite and personal. You see, he's not content being just a concept or idea you believe in. He's not content being a powerful force that you respect. He's not content being a source of good emotion that you feel. His desire is to be known. And he's revealing himself as the word. Now, if that wasn't scandalous enough for John's readers, his next line would have surely done it when he said this, that word became flesh. God becomes human. Now, I realize, again, the curse of familiarity. You might think, yeah, I thought you'd say that, right? That's the whole reason we're here. But to its earliest readers, and I would argue to us, this should not be something as business as usual. What John says here, as a matter of fact, is a mystery that you could spend your entire life exploring and never reach its depths. That God became human. Frederick Buchner says this, the incarnation is kind of a vast joke where the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we have taken this idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. The incarnation is a beautiful mystery. It is absolutely wildly unimaginable that the God of the universe would subject himself to something like diapers and being a baby. Like if I were to give you the pen and say, how would you write this story? Right? You'd probably come in with some trumpets, right? A big hurrah, everybody celebrating your name, right? If you got the opportunity to reveal that you were God, there would be a concert. You know what I'm saying? Food, the whole smorgasbord, it would be this big, huge thing. But God chooses to reveal himself to a poor immigrant family in the middle of nowhere, becoming a human baby. Now, get me wrong. Babies are beautiful and cute, but also, right, if you've been a parent, there's a whole a lot about that process that isn't beautiful and nice, and God submits himself to that. 
the creator of the all, the creator of the universe, the one who is infinite, became an infant. That's kind of crazy. And if you don't think so, you're under the curse of familiarity. This story has become cold to you because this is a mystery for us to explore. Now, John captures this idea with his word choice. You see, John could have said anything. John could have said, God became human or he became a man. But the word John uses is the word flesh. Now, the Greek word here is the Greek word sarks. Can you say sarks? Go surprise someone at Christmas Eve dinner now. You know, drop some Greek on them. Now, sarks is one way to talk about the body, but it's not the glorious way to talk about the body. When you say sarks, you're not talking about, you know, the magazine cover that you see leaving the grocery store with the photoshopped abs and the chiseled body and all that stuff. No, when you're talking about sarks, you're talking about the bedhead, bad breath, body odor kind of body, that kind of embodiment. And so as he says, this word that is poetic and beautiful became sarks, became that part of being human. It would be absolutely scandalous. Why would he do that? Why would John choose this language? He's trying to communicate something, and here's what he's trying to communicate. Love gets close enough to know. Love gets close enough to know. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippians. He says, who, this being Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. God becoming flesh means this. God is willing to roll up his sleeves and get involved. That he's not willing just to stand off in a distance and shout pleasantries from above, but he's willing to get his hands dirty. Because here's a simple truth. There is no love without involvement because love demands presence. And love looks like showing up. I'll never forget when I got taught a master class in the art of showing up. You know, being a pastor, I get the unique privilege of being with people in some of the most imaginable moments of their life. Sometimes they're great moments, like weddings. You know, you got the perfect seat in the house. But sometimes it's things like funerals. Sometimes it's hospital visits. Sometimes it's praying with people as they are breathing their last. And as a pastor, you kind of feel this pressure to have to, like, say the right things. But in moments like that, what do you say? And so I remember um, when I was on staff at a church, I was kind of the low man on the totem pole, which meant I got sent to do all the stuff nobody else wanted to do, i.e. those kind of hard moments. And I thought the first few I came in with verses and words and all this stuff, and they all fell flat. Because very quickly you realize people don't want your words. They just want your presence. And so you learn how to just shut up and be there for whatever it is the family needs. Now, it's one thing being on that end of things. But the master class I got wasn't in the hospital, and it wasn't in a classroom. It was when it struck my own life. Many of you know 
our youngest is um, probably the reason I have as many white hairs as I do. And it may not look like it from far, but get close. You'll see them sprouting. And it's because of the number of hospital visits he's liked to take. And uh, I'll never forget, in one of the ones that we had, um, they, uh, my son had gone to the hospital, and they were going to admit us for the night. And I remember I'm driving back, and this was our third serious hospital stint that we had had with him. And as I'm driving back, a familiar face pops up on my phone. And as I answer the phone, I don't really feel like talking, but he doesn't really even give me a chance to talk. All he says is, I'm coming over. And I was on my way to the house to pack us a hospital bag. And I'll never forget, I pulled up and he had beat me there. I don't know how, but he did. And he's waiting for me there at the door and we go in the door together and I couldn't tell you anything that he said. I'm not even sure what I packed in the bag. Some of it was probably really unhelpful, right? But I was just stuffing things I thought needed to go in the bag. But I'll never forget that he was there for me. And I'll never forget what it was like just to have somebody there where you are frantically packing a bag for a hospital visit, you're not too sure what it's gonna look like. And it was in that moment I felt incredibly loved. And it wasn't because of anything he said. It wasn't because of the way he helped me pack the bag, it's because he showed up. And love looks like showing up. The incarnation is God showing up. It's him being completely discontent with the way the things, the way the things in the world are, so much so that he would come down. That's how much he cares. And that's the extent of his love. Now, God did not look down from heaven, offer us best wishes, but instead he got involved. He didn't just feel bad for us, but he loves us so much that he's willing to get involved in the mess. But know this, getting involved always means risk. And love looks like risk. Not only did Jesus just show up, but he showed up knowing what it would cost him. Jesus knew that in the showing up and the getting involved, it wasn't just going to be a couple of inconvenient nights they'll have to pull away from his busy schedule, but that it was going to ultimately cost him everything, that it would cost him his life. The author of Hebrews says it this way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now think about it. What joy was before him in that moment? And what joy did he not have already being in fellowship with the Father? There was one thing that Jesus didn't have. There was one thing that Jesus left heaven for. Do you want to know what it is? It's you. It's me. It's us. Reconciling you back to himself was the joy that got Jesus through the crucifixion. Is that as he was facing unimaginable pain, he looked to the other side of the cross, seeing the resurrection, and that joy of being reconciled to you is what carried him through that moment. Jesus knew what it would cost him but he endured it with joy for you. St. Augustine says this, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way 
be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher might be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength grow weak, the healer be wounded, that life might die. Jesus showed up even though it cost him everything because love looks like risk. Then, John says this, he made his dwelling among us. Now, the English word dwelling is literally the word tabernacle in Greek. So if this, word, if this sentence reads literally, it's Jesus, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And this is drawing on imagery from Exodus, that the tabernacle being this tent in the wilderness that was the place of God's presence. Another way to say this is Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. And I love the way Eugene Peterson defines this. He says this, the word became flesh and blood, and check this out, and moved into the neighborhood. John is saying that Jesus moved into the neighborhood that the presence of God might be among us. And this has so many implications And we could stay here all night. Trust me, we won't, but we could. And there's so many implications, but it means at least this. He knows what it means to be human. Now, the author of Hebrews, again, says it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. The word empathize in Greek is the word sympatheo. Sim, meaning with, and patheo, meaning suffer. So quite literally, we, have a, we don't have a high priest who is unable to suffer with us in our weakness because he suffered too. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. There is no experience that you could have that Jesus does not understand. Whatever circumstance, emotion, or place you find yourself in tonight, Jesus has been there. He was betrayed, beaten, mocked, slandered, poor, hungry, tired, frustrated, alone, afraid, and facing death. There is nothing you could endure that Jesus has not endured as well. And wherever it is you find yourself tonight, know this. Jesus has been there. Now, it's one thing for you to understand where somebody is at. It's another thing when you've stood in their shoes. Right, it's one thing to know about somebody whose child's life is falling apart. It's another thing to pray that kind of midnight prayer, God, please bring them home okay. It's one thing to feel bad for somebody who's wrestling through infertility. It is another thing to cling with all the hope that you have for please let there be a positive test. There's one thing to know about somebody who has a diagnosis they were not expecting. It is another to hear the words from the doctors, we got the results back and they don't look good. It's one thing to feel bad for somebody in a bad bad financial situation. It's another thing to feel the kind of despair, not being sure how you're going to feed your kids. It's one thing to know something. It's another to experience it. And Jesus has been in your shoes. He has suffered with us. Because there's a certain kind of fellowship that comes from suffering. And Jesus knows suffering. Now, Jesus dwelt among us, not only that we are to know, not only so he could know our suffering, but that we may see his glory. 
John continues, and he says this, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's talk about this word glory. We use the word glory a lot, but I'm not sure we're exactly clear on what it means. What might come into your mind when you think of glory as someone being celebrated for a great accomplishment, that that is glory in that moment? Or for you football fans, your team finally making it to the playoffs and you cry, glory, right, they made it. But what exactly does the biblical authors mean when he says glory? Well, in Hebrew, it's the word kavod. Can you say kavod? All right, three of you are in. The rest of you are out. Hang in there with me. Kavod. All right, I'll leave it be this time. Next one, I'm getting you. Now, the Hebrew word kavod literally means heavy. So there's like two funny examples. So one, do you guys remember the old school flat screen TVs? That once they were put in your house, it was staying bar a move of God. Because those things were kavod. They were heavy. You know what I'm saying? The biblical authors use this word quite literally other places too. There's a famous story about a king who was so kavod that when a guy stabbed him, the knife stayed in. You know what I'm saying? This is how the biblical authors use the word kavod. And they use this word to describe glory as well. Why? Well, we kind of do the same thing. If you've seen a really impactful movie, and you know that moment where you all kind of walk out of the theater, and it's just quiet, and no one knows who's going to say one thing first, and someone's like, dude, that was heavy, right? It's the way of describing kind of how you're feeling in that moment after being exposed to something of that kind of level of importance, It's that idea that the biblical authors are mapping on when they use this word, glory. And so John is saying that they have experienced the weight of Jesus, the importance of Jesus. And and he says, and what does it look like? And he says it looks like two things, grace and truth. Now, let's deal with truth first. I realize this word has some baggage with it, especially in our modern moment. And there's not much of truth that is objective in our cultural moment. It's all subjective. We have phrases like my truth, your truth, their truth. But the biblical authors have more, um, more that they mean by this, and I'll explain here in a moment. Before I get there, I just want to ask you one question. Who do you trust to tell you the truth? I mean, really, who do you trust to tell you the truth? Is it politicians? Is it the media? Is it your circle of friends? Who do you trust to tell you the truth? Historically, the word truth has had two meanings. One pertains to reality or that which pertains to reality. But the other one pertains to direction. One framework of truth is that of reality. It is a set of verifiable facts. But the other idea around truth is direction. So this understanding is a lot more ancient, but it was used to speak about something's, uh, the quality of something, its faithfulness or its steadfastness. So an archer would have an arrow, and if the arrow was, was true, it means that the arrow would fly straight, that there was no bend in the arrow so that the arrow would turn with the wind at all. It would fly exactly in the direction as which it was sent. So you'd say that arrow is true. If you're a carpenter, you use this same language when you're talking about pieces of lumber or material, that that is a true board, meaning that it is actually square and straight. It has no bend or warp in it. And this is the language of what it means to be true, both in the biblical mind. 
And so for something to be true, it means it goes the direction it promises to go or it does what it promises to do. So I pose another question. Is what you're following true? Is what you're following taking you in the direction it promises to go? And Jesus says of himself, he is the truth. Now, that's not just a really cool nickname he's made for himself. He's making a statement with it. Jesus being completely true means that he tells us what is reality and his way leads to where it promises. First, he tells us what is reality. You know you're actually following Jesus when you have moments where you disagree with him. You know you're really following Jesus when you get to those places. If your Jesus always agrees with you, you're not following the real Jesus. Because Jesus has some pretty hard things to say. I.e., love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? Those aren't necessarily the easy things to receive. And sure, like in theory, when it's really far and abstract, yes, Lord, bless my enemies until they're up close and personal. And then it's like, I don't know, Jesus. I don't think I really want to do that. If your Jesus always agrees with you, you're not following Jesus. You're following yourself. But Jesus always tells you what is true. He always calls you to conform to reality. He always calls you to something beyond yourself. Now, not just does he tell us reality, but he also, his way leads to where it promises. Now, I want to be very clear. If you're signing up for this whole Jesus thing because you think it's going to make your life easier, talk to anybody who's been following Jesus for any amount of time. That's bad PR. That's not at all what Jesus is signing you up for. And you're like, well, that seems kind of misleading because that's what I was told, except for the very things that Jesus said. For example, he said, in this world you will have trouble. He couldn't be more clear than that, right? He's not saying, hey, when you follow me, dude, it's all good. Your finances will be blessed. Your whole life will be blessed. No problems following me. No, he's like, yeah, you're going to have a lot of trouble. But don't lose heart because I've overcome the world. This is the promise of Jesus. He promises an abundant life. Now, that word has some baggage around it, too. It doesn't mean your life's going to be super comfortable, but it does mean this. It will be full of purpose and possibility. That when you follow the way of Jesus, that will become your life, purpose and possibility. And know this, that anyone who has ever lived a life of consequence has always suffered. But those who have followed Jesus gave their suffering a purpose. And that's what Jesus invites us into. And so his glory looks like truth. But it also looks like grace. Now, if truth is the way we ought to go, then grace is how we get there. And a lot of us misunderstand this. Maybe for you, you measure God's nearness to you based on your performance. Like if you've had a stellar year, God is super near. But if you've had maybe not your best year so far, he feels distant. This is what grace means. Grace means God is near despite your performance. Jesus did not come to earth only when humanity achieved a level of performance of earning it. He came out of his love in our darkest moment. The promise of Christmas is that the light shines in the darkness and darkness could not overcome. Grace is God setting you free from the prison you've created for yourself, not because you've earned it, but because it's who he is. Grace means that God is near to you right now. And right now, 
He wants to be near to you. And grace is God's pursuing love. Maybe this year you've been running from God. Maybe you've been looking to all sorts of things to fill you with joy that just aren't. God is pursuing you tonight. And so, if I could summarize my message for those of you I lost, welcome back. The show is almost over. We'll be done shortly. But to summarize this message in two words, here it is. You ready? You got your pens ready? Pay attention. Pay attention. Why? Because you could miss it. Aside from a poor immigrant family, some grizzled shepherds, and some, if we're quite honest, strange astronomers, everybody in Bethlehem missed the incarnation. They missed it. Why? I mean, was the beacon in the sky not enough? But why? Because it came disguised as everyday, ordinary life. Nothing was different about that day except everything was different about that day. The only thing that mattered was were you paying attention? Were you listening? The incarnation means this. God comes disguised as ordinary. He comes in a cradle in the dirt. He comes with a bunch of farm animals in a shed. He comes to us disguised as ordinary life. And this is my favorite, one of my favorite quotes by Paula Darcy. She says this, God comes to us disguised as our life. And so my invitation for you is to pay attention. How might God be coming to you? Maybe it's disguised in the ordinary preaching of a Christmas sermon. Maybe it comes disguised as a job promotion or a change in your career. Maybe it's come in the birth of a new friendship or an ending of an old one. Maybe it comes to the gentle whisper of creation. But God is coming to you, not with trumpets and large signs, but rather in the still small voice of everyday life. And so here's the invitation. Pay attention. The end of the year is a beautiful time to reflect on your own story, on your journey. And my question I want to leave you with is this. How might God be coming to you in this last year? What maybe to you, you dismissed as everyday ordinary life, was God coming to meet you right where you were? My prayer is that right now, and I know he's faithful to do this, that the Holy Spirit is highlighting moments where God was coming to you, that are personal to you, that are unique to you and your story. And here's what I know that you will find if you think about it just long enough. It's this. You'll be surprised by his unexpected nearness. That in moments where maybe you felt he was far away or you were alone, he was closer than you knew. That in moments you couldn't see his hand, now looking back, the evidence of his presence were all over. In moments that were filled with unimaginable pain, God is looking back on those moments with you and releasing joy. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to enter into a time of response. Now, um, we're going to be as pragmatic about this as possible, so here's how it's going to go. We're going to enter into our candlelight response. And so what we want to do now as parents, if you have kids, check into Ninos. If you will make your way back and go ahead and get them out of Ninos. Um, and as you do so, 
Um, the rest of you, there at the back table, there's some candles if you want to make your way to go get a candle and make your way back to your seat, and then we'll have some people come forward and light those candles for you. But as we do, Jake's going to lead us in some music, and then I'll come back and lead us through our candlelight ending of this evening. Awesome.